committee will come to order. You swear that the evidence which you shall give to the Senate Select Committee on presidential campaign activities shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. How would you characterize the Watergate burglary? I guess I'd have to say there was probably the opening act of one of America's great tragedies. Former counsel to the President John Dean, in answer to Senator Montoya. The hearings open May 17, 1973. Members of the committee emphasize what they consider key elements of the testimony to come. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17 break-in strike at the very undergirding of our democracy. Committee Chairman Sam Irvin, Democrat of North Carolina. If the many allegations made to this day are true, then the burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were in effect breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. And if these allegations proved to be true, what they were seeking to steal was not the jewels, money, or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable, their most precious heritage, the right to vote in a free election. This committee is not a court, nor is it a jury. Committee Vice Chairman Howard Baker, Republican of Tennessee. We do not sit to pass judgment on the guilt or innocence of anyone. But this committee can serve another quite important function that neither a grand jury investigation nor a judicial proceeding is equipped to serve. And that is to develop the facts in full view of all of the people of America. Although juries will eventually determine the guilt or the innocence of persons who have been and may be indicted for specific violations of the law, it is the American people who must be the final judge of Watergate. What will Watergate do, and what will these hearings do to the office and institution of the presidency? Senator Edward Gurney, Republican of Florida. That is the question that is uppermost in people's minds and gnawing away in the pits of their stomachs. The future cannot be unaffected by what we say and do in this room. It becomes imperative that this committee and the committee staff and the press and public alike be continually aware that the committee's task is to investigate and to present the facts of the investigation fairly. A sense of history certainly rides with these hearings. The sins of the spies and the saboteurs, the manipulators and the money men, the burglars and the buggers, must be purged from the very heart and soul of our election processes. Senator Daniel Inoue, Democrat of Hawaii. Mr. Chairman, I must add a word of caution. It is vital that hasty judgments not be made before we have all the facts. This country will be ill-served by another period of McCarthyism. I know that we will be respectful of the rights of individuals. Senator Joseph Montoya, Democrat of New Mexico. But at the same time, we will be intent on searching out the truth of all evidentiary components which ostensibly have posed a threat to our constitutional processes, in particular, our concept of freedom and our electoral process. The gut question for committee and country alike is and was, how much truth 
do we want? Senator Lowell Weicker, Republican of Connecticut. A few men gambled that Americans wanted the quiet of efficiency rather than the turbulence of truth. And they were stopped a yard short of the goal by another few who believed in America as advertised. So the story to come, not in the acts of men breaking entering and bugging the Watergate, but in the acts of men who almost, who almost stole America. The remaining member of the committee is Senator Herman Talmadge, Democrat of Georgia. Senator Irvin often quotes Shakespeare or the Bible to underline his points. There was a wise man named William Shakespeare that wrote a play called Henry IV. And in that he has one of his uh, characters, Cardinal Wolseley, say, after Cardinal Wolseley, instead of serving the church, had served his king, and he was cast out in his old age with the king, and he said, had I but served my God, with half the zeal, I served my king. He would not, in mine age, left me naked to mine enemies. You have <laughs> the hearing's first witness, Robert Odell of the Committee to Re-elect the President, is questioned about Gordon Liddy and the paper shredder. I saw Mr. Liddy, I saw him in the hall. I see. And uh, he asked me where the paper shredder was. What, what? The, the paper, paper shredder. shredder. All right. The paper shredder, which is a very famous big paper shredder. Um, uh, was there a big paper shredder yes, and sir. a little baby, uh, baby yes, sir. paper shredder too? Pardon? Was there more than one? Yes, sir. All right, and he asked where the big paper shredder is. Right, and I said it's in there. Did he give? Did he have anything with him? Not at that time. My, he later came out and said, "How do you work it?" And I said, "You press the button." Robert Odell is questioned by Senator Inouye. Is it true that you hired Mr. McCord? Yes, it is. Were you aware of his uh, activities on June the 17th? I was not. I first heard that there was a burglary uh, Saturday afternoon after I, after I finished a meeting about, oh, I don't know, mid-afternoon. And somebody came by the door and they said, have you heard there's been a burglary at the Democratic National Committee? And I said to some people who were in that meeting who were not from the committee, I said, that could never happen here because I have this guy working for me named Jim McCord. <laughs> got this place really tight and all I can say is I'm glad McCord works for me and that and then of course uh, it became apparent what had happened but no sir I did not ex-New York police officer Anthony Ulasewicz who worked for the White House is questioned by Senator Baker about the term wire man did I understand you to say that McCord was a pretty good wire man 
Well, uh, yeah, from what I've uh, read of the case, he's, and from uh, the fact that Mr. Caulfield hired him, I would say he was uh, one of the best wire men in the business. Well, I'm not... <laughs> I'm, I'm not familiar with the term. What do you mean, a pretty good wire man? Well, a wire man in, uh, in police parlance would be anyone who's familiar with uh, applying wire taps, uh, any type of uh, surveillances by uh, electrical means and so forth. However, I was never a wire man. <laughs> well, while we were in the police department, many of the, uh, of the functions that we did, of course, they were all legal and uh, with, with uh, proper papers, et cetera, and judicial permission, uh, we have some of the finest wire men in the department. And you think your wire men were better than McCord's wire men? Well, I tell you, there would no, no retired man in the New York City Police Department would be coming involved in a thing like that. And if he thought he had to, for whatever reason it was, he wouldn't have walked in with an army. He would have probably walked in like any decent, common-looking citizen, laid something in the right place and walked right out, and that would have been the end of it for a long time. How could you? <laughs> well, they say you must be honest here, Senator. Yeah, right? how, how could... <laughs> How could you have gained the information? How could you have gained the information that Mr. McCord obviously or apparently was seeking, that is, uh, telecommunication link with what was going on in the Democratic National Committee without going in there with an army and taping the doors and all the rest? Describe to us how else that might have been done by a good wire man. If it's a question of obtaining information from a Democratic Party, Republican, or anybody else, the easiest way is to write a postal card and ask them to mail you all their leaflets. They'll put you on, and forever you'll have everything. Even after it's over with, you'll still get it. They're very happy to do so. You mean politicians are pretty anxious to add to their mailing list? And the politicians are most vulnerable people in the world, in my experience in the last three years, to any kind of scandal, et cetera, and et cetera. Well, I don't say they're guilty of it because I still have to come back here. <laughs> well, now, but let, because, let's, of, let's, because of the type and, and, the, and, and the last thing on earth I'd want to do is to convert your testimony into self-serving purposes for this committee. But you don't have any good wire men on us, do you? <laughs> looks like there's plenty of them here. <laughs> well, you know, that's not a very good answer. You're heightening my concern rather than lessening. I have none on anybody. Thank you. Thank you. Alfred C. Baldwin, who worked with the Watergate burglars, was across the street from the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Here he tells Senator Weicker what happened after the team had been captured by police the night of the break-in. Mr. Hunt came into the room. All right. He then uh, proceeded to give me instructions what to do with the equipment. And he, what were those instructions? Well, he removed a walkie-talkie put it on the bed, and he told me to pack up everything. I believe his expression was, get it the hell out of here. Get yourself the hell out of here. Go somewhere. Where are you going to, where are you going to go? I said, well, I can go to Connecticut. And he said, we'll go. And uh, he said, we'll be in touch. You'll get further instructions. Now, he said, I want you to take all this equipment to Mr. Mrs. McCord's, Mr. McCord's house. And I had a little debate with him about that because I said, well, there's two of you. And there's only one of me. Why can't you drive it and somebody can drive you back? If I get out there, I have no way to get back. 
He said, Mrs. McCord or somebody will drive you back. You work that out. And he proceeded to go out the door, and he went down to the he, elevator. He, but now, he went out the door, and was he running down the hall or yes, walking? Yes, he was. No, he was departing. And did you say anything to him as he went running down the hall? Yes, I did. What did you say to him? I asked him if this meant I wasn't going to Miami. G. Gordon Liddy, architect of the CRP intelligence plan, is described by White House aide John Caulfield in questioning by committee minority counsel Fred Thompson. My impression of Mr. Liddy was that he uh, uh, may have been a very capable uh, uh, legal uh, general counsel, but that he also uh, uh, in occasion occasionally uh, did some fairly bizarre things. Uh, he gave... Uh, we know of one. Pardon? He, for example, he gave a, a, a secretary in our office a large poster of himself. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we should pursue that any further, <laughs> but... Uh, probably uh, six feet by four feet in uh, size. Larger than life size. Larger than life It was occasionally bizarre. CRP official Hugh Sloan tells the committee about his transportation troubles. My car, which I had parked uh, in a towaway zone, uh, that day lasted beyond the 4.30 and my car had disappeared uh, following my resignation. And the only person... <laughs> was that any connection with Watergate? <laughs> I don't believe so, Senator. I was somewhat frustrated at that point and uh, turned to John Dean if he might be of some assistance in locating where the Metropolitan Police Department might have placed it, and he was very helpful in that regard. <laughs> he certainly has a lot of contacts. The counsel will call the witness. Chairman, thank you very much. Mr. Glasswitz, I can't resist saying that you provided us all with at least a half a dozen titles for books or novels. Well, that was not my intent, Senator. It was just to present it as an opera. Anthony Ulasiewicz provides the committee with some of its more uproarious moments. I will pay for it, that's for sure. The newspapers will have a ball with this one. <laughs> who thought you up? I mean, who, who, who first? <laughs> well, I don't know, but they, they taught me this. Maybe my parents' fault. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to have your concept, and I think this is very much, now we're getting into the real essence of the business of this committee. Senator Weicker probes John Ehrlichman. Well, what is your concept of, of political information? Uh, you see, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, thanks to uh, the committee to re-elect the president and some of the witnesses that have appeared here, uh, everybody thinks that the senators at this table and, and others engaged in politics uh, go running around hiring Ulasiewicz types to dig up dirt on each other. And uh, I just can't allow that to, to fly without, without contesting it, because really it's going to make uh, elections rather interesting in the future if it does. 
Um, and I wonder if you might, since you were the one that was responsible for hiring this man, and since we've had a description of this, by this man of exactly what his job consisted of, which was dirt, uh, I wonder if you might tell the committee uh, what your concept is of uh, politics here in the United States in, in, insofar as this type of activity is concerned. Well, I think that certainly there is room for improvement in the practice of politics in this country. There's no, there's no argument about that. But at the same time, I think that each candidate who contests the candidacy of an incumbent has the obligation to come forward and uh, contest the fitness of that incumbent for office, both in terms of his voting record and in terms of his probity and in terms of his uh, morals, if you please, and any other fact that is uh, important or germane to the voters of his district or state, or the country for that matter. I think a candidate for office assumes that burden of proof. He assumes a burden of proof of showing the unfitness of the incumbent. And uh, I don't think that in our political system that is limited to his voting record or his absenteeism. Do you mean to tell me, in this committee, that you consider private investigators going into sexual habits, drinking habits, domestic problems, and personal social activities as a, as a proper subject for investigation during the course of a political campaign? Senator, I know of my own knowledge of incumbents in office who are not discharging their obligation to their constituents because of their drinking habits. You can go over here in the gallery and watch a member totter onto the floor in a, in a condition which, uh, of, of at least partial inebriation, which would preclude him from making any sort of a sober judgment on the issues that confront this country. Now, I think that is important for the American people to know, and if the only way that it can be brought out is through his, op his opponent in a political campaign, then I think that opponent has an affirmative obligation to bring that forward. Well, now, this is getting very interesting. <laughs> Do you really want to bring the political system of the United States, of our campaigns, down to the level of what you're talking about right now? Well, I, I conceive of it this way, Senator. I, I know that in your situation, uh, your lifestyle is undoubtedly impeccable, and there wouldn't be anything uh, at issue like that. Uh, I'm time, no angel. Uh, let's I'm take no it angel, but I'll tell you what. I thought you I were. I, uh, believe me, believe me, I'm not, and I, I worry about you sicking people on the landscape here. Uh, I've probably got a greater worry now that I've heard about this than I did before I before I started it. I'll put it that way. Well, but, I think uh, you'll you'll agree with me, Senator, that that certainly uh, someone with a serious drinking habit uh, is of doubtful fitness uh, for the kind of heavy duties that uh, you bear, for instance, or that any senator bears in the Senate of the United States. Uh, that is certainly a material question that has to be raised in a political campaign, at least so it seems to me. Now, if that is not something that the incumbent's opponent should bring out, then you are leaving the constituency to the tender mercies of the uh, journalists in the community as to whether or not that's reported to the constituency, because they don't have any way of knowing really, especially the, the constituencies remote from here, where people get here very seldom to, to make an observation. 
So I would be very concerned about that, and that seems to me to be a very legitimate subject of inquiry. Now, maybe my standards are all haywire, and that uh, uh, everybody in the Congress ought to be immune from scrutiny on that subject. But that just seems to me to be uh, an indefensible position on your part. You think that uh, we have no scrutiny around here? Sir? You think we have no scrutiny well, around here? Well, in all candor... Uh, I mean, I got no... I mean, let's count them. I mean, they're all over here at this stage of the game, and they're here all the time, not just to hear you and I talk. If there's anything that uh, is, is quite obvious in Washington, D.C., it's that every aspect of our lives, legislatively, personally, in every way, is subject to the scrutiny of a free press and subject to the scrutiny at least the Congress is subject to the scrutiny of the free press. And also subject to the scrutiny of our, of our constituencies. Our wives, right. <laughs> Senator Gurney, described as the committee member most favorable to the White House, tangles with Sam Irvin over what he terms harassment of witnesses by the chairman. American public, I don't think, understands how these committee hearings are conducted. And I don't want them to get the impression that the questioning of any senator here is found favor by other senators. And I, for one, have not appreciated the harassment of this witness by the chairman in the questioning that is just finished. I think this Senate committee ought to act in fairness. Well, I have not uh, questioned the veracity of the witness. I've asked the witness some questions to find out what the truth is. I, uh, I use the word harassment. The what? Harassment. Harassment. H-A-R-A-S-S-M-E-N-T. Well, I'm sorry the, the, my distinguished friend from Florida does not approve of my method of uh, examining the witness. I'm an old country lawyer, and I don't know the fine uh, ways to do it. I just have to do it my way. I didn't I, say I, I approved I, or disapproved, Mr. Chairman. I just want to The chairman is fond of pointing out from time to time that he is just a country lawyer. He omits to say that he graduated from Harvard Law School with honors. <laughs> if the citizen from Tennessee will yield, I'd like to say a word in my own defense on that point. <laughs> I had a friend introduce me to North Carolina audience. He said he understood I was graduating from Harvard Law School, but thank God nobody would ever suspect it. In the course of all of our testimony, to the extent that we have conflicts in it, I'm reminded of an old lawyer in Scott County, Tennessee, named Haywood Pemerton, who was employed to defend a man. And he said, I just shot a man, Haywood, will you defend me? And he said, of course I'll defend you. Did you kill him? He said, no, I just wounded him. And he said, well, that's all right, but just remember, he'll be an awful hard witness against you. Mr. <laughs> Chairman, I regret I have no Hawaiian stories to tell. I was handed a book written by Woodrow Wilson. 
New Freedom During the Noon Hour, written in 1913, 60 years ago. Senator Herman Talmadge. I read from page 111, chapter 6, Let There Be Light. The concern of patriotic men is to put our government again on its right basis by substituting the popular will for the rule of guardians. The processes of common counsel for those of private arrangement. In order to do this, a first necessity is to open the doors and let in the light on all affairs which the people have a right to know about. In the first place, it is necessary to open up all of the processes of our politics. They have been too secret, too complicated, too roundabout. They have consisted too much of private conferences and secret understanding. The issue of the White House tapes and the president's refusal to turn them over to the committee draws a comment from Senator Irvin. This is a rather remarkable letter about the tapes. If you notice, the president says he's heard the tapes, or some of them, and they sustain his position. But he says he's not going to let anybody else hear them for fear they might draw a different conclusion. Anthony Ulasiewicz comments about some of the problems he had delivering the money to Mrs. Hunt. How were you traveling during this period of time? Uh, by airplane, uh, Eastern Airlines shuttle usually. Did you ever change your uh, mode of travel? Did you have a problem on the planes? Well, there was a, there was a period of time uh, when, of course, with the hijacks and all, uh, they started a searching system on uh, various airlines. <laughs> and uh, that was a little problem. And I got in the line one time to go back. It was uh, when I had a, probably only about 50,000 at this time. And uh, a fellow in front of me, two or three uh, persons in front of me, uh, was stopped and had to produce, I think, four packs of cigarettes or something, set off the alarm. So I went into a coughing fit, and I went down to Pennsylvania Railroad and took the train home. <laughs> CRP Treasurer Hugh Sloan explains to Senator Irvin how he asked John Mitchell for advice and Mitchell's response. I guess what I was hoping for was uh, an explanation that everything was all right. I did not yes. know such guidance. And the only uh, advice you got on the subject was the philosophical observation that when the going gets uh, uh, tough, the tough get going. Yes, sir. I don't quite understand it all, but... Uh, I didn't really understand how, how long was it after that before Mr. Mitchell left the committee? Senator, I, I, I must admit that when I received news of Mr. Mitchell's departure when I was in Bermuda, that same thought did cross my mind as well. How long have you lived in Washington? I've been here about 10 years. And you don't know the difference between the Washington Hilton and the Mayflower Hotel? I, con I continually get them confused, I must confess. John Dean's memory is the subject of this exchange between Dean and Senator Gurney about the site of a meeting between Dean and Herbert Kalmbach, President Nixon's personal attorney. Well, I must say, I am reminded of 
your colloquy with the chairman yesterday, Mr. Dean, when you said what an excellent memory you had right from school days right on down. And that's, that's why you were I able feel, to reconstruct I feel my this. memory is good, but I, I do have, I confuse some names often. Uh, I don't have, pretend to have a perfect memory. I think I have a good memory, Senator. But you can't remember really now, after testifying three times very positively, whether it was the Stadley Hilton or the Mayflower. Well, Senator, I, the, the, the point in uh, substance here is the fact that the meeting did occur. We met in the coffee shop. We went from the coffee shop to his room. We had an extended discussion of the matter. Uh, and uh, that is very clear in my recollection, the substance of, of the event. Um, I might just go back to one point. Uh, the name of the coffee shop at the Statler Hilton is the Mayflower. Well, <laughs> audience will please refrain from applause or demonstrating that their reaction to any testimony. Is that what your attorney just told you? Yes, he did. <laughs> His memory apparently is much better than yours. <laughs> to your original concepts of public service and the motivations which uh, moved you into this spectrum, and then subsequently your soldierly obedience to instructions from your superiors, and your fall into the Watergate pit. Senator Montoya questions Gordon Strawn about his advice to young people considering a career in politics. What advice? do you have for these young people? I believe they want to hear from you. Now, will you expound on that? Well, may, sound, may not be uh, the type of advice that uh, you could look back and, and want to give, but uh, my advice would be to stay away. Just. I think you've answered it very well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.